The first big NBA player ranking series of the offseason is here from The Athletic, in my opinion, the best one on today's episode of Locked On Suns. Who's too high? Who's too low? Who's just right? And what big questions remain based on what we see here? Let's go. You are Locked On Suns, your daily Phoenix Suns podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And we're back. This is Locked On Phoenix Suns. We're part of the Locked On Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Brendan Clean, a credentialed media member covering the Suns for the past six seasons, a writer at suns.com, and the host of the Just Basketball Show, wherever you get your podcasts. A big thank you for making Locked On Suns your first listen to start your week. We are in basically the last week of three times a week. No, we have one more after this. When September, when Labor Day hits, we will be daily, so just search Locked On Suns wherever you find podcasts. Get this show in your feed. Every single day, become an everyday or get locked onto the Suns by hitting follow or subscribe anywhere, including YouTube. Almost 6,000 subscribers on YouTube, a bunch more on audio. Appreciate you guys. If you want to join that community, you know what to do. We're talking uh, the Suns' big four again today. You can't talk about them enough, and I actually think these lists are good. If they're done well, these types of big ranking projects, I think, are very good. And very helpful because it's not just the in a vacuum who's ahead of who, although that's fun. That That's kind of a, a, a good t- content in and of itself. But beyond that, bigger than that, at the end of the day, you know, basketball is a sport where it's stacking up individual impact. Maybe some guys make other teammates better. Maybe it's just cumulative total talent. And that's just what this sport is. So in a way, ranking them up and comparing and contrasting teams and players and all that, that's sort of what this whole thing is about. So I'm one who always dives into this stuff and we'll do it today together based on Seth Partnow over at The Athletic. He put together 125 in tiers. So it's not just one through 125. They're broken down in tiers and everybody in the same tier is equivalent to one another. So we have Kevin Durant in tier 1B, Devin Booker in tier 2A, and we will get into it right now, but I want to remind you today's show first is brought to you by Bird Dogs. Go to birddogs.com slash LockedOnNBA or enter promo code LockedOnNBA at purchase with a, for a free white tech hat. It's like a golf hat with any purchase. You don't want to take your Bird Dogs off. More from them later on in the show. Let's go. All right. Um, so I'm going to break this down by a little bit of chatter or conversation about what the ranking means, whether I agree with it, whether I disagree with it, but really the biggest looming questions, the biggest questions that will matter from what Seth breaks down in his article going forward, what kind of will determine whether the players on this list on the Suns go up or down. If you were to redo this exercise, you know, heading into the playoffs, that type of thing. So let's start with Durant again, tier one B the rest of the players uh, in that tier are Luka Doncic and Joel Embiid. There is one tier obviously ahead of that, which is 1A, and that has the three past finals MVPs on it, which I think most NBA fans would agree are the three best guys in the league, Giannis, Steph, and Jokic. So basically this is Seth Partnow saying that Kevin Durant is a top six player in the league and debatably, you know, uh, a top four player in the league. 
uh, you know, you could put him at four. But again, the tier 1B is interchangeable. So he's saying Durant, Luka, and Joel Embiid are equivalent when you really zoom out big picture. So I think I agree with that. I don't think uh, there's much room to quibble, really, because you look at the, the tier below, <clears throat> and I think Seth does a good job of it here. Sorry for the throat clearing. Seth does a good job of it here by really the next tier are guys who are either inconsistent, injured, older, or guys who have a big difference between their regular season and their postseason performance um, for the most part. And then we'll get to Booker, who's actually the tier right behind Durant. But the next three guys on the list really are, are LeBron, Kawhi, and Jimmy Butler. And then from there, it's, it's Tatum and Booker, who I will jump to in a second. So I think when you think about Durant, yes, there have been some injury concerns. He is on you know the wrong side of 30, quote unquote, but He's not LeBron's age. You know, he doesn't have the same level of injury concerns as Kawhi Leonard. And he is a pretty great regular season player when he's healthy. Unlike Jimmy, who last year had a great year, but most of the time is like a fringe all-star, fringe all-NBA guy, uh, and then really turns it on in the postseason. So Durant doesn't quite fit any of those, so I think it's right to put him ahead. He's also much more proven than a Booker or a Tatum, even if those guys maybe obviously have a bigger ceiling for what they might be able to do this season if they take another step forward. So my lingering questions, my looming questions with Durant, because I do agree so much with the actual rank here, is much more about the context of it. And the things that Seth brings up in this athletic article are related to his recent playoff failures. So let's break that down first, and I'll get to the next one next. Um, it's, it's, un, it's impossible to argue. I mean, Durant has had two straight postseasons that are below his standard. But even then, you don't want to necessarily group them together, right? Because at the end of the day, like, the 2022 playoffs when he got swept by the Celtics as a member of Brooklyn's team was way worse. 39% shooting from the field, five turnover, more than five turnovers per game and just six assists. Ugly, ugly by all counts, fouled a lot as a defensive player trying to contain Tatum and, and Brown and, and some of their wings. Uh, just ugly all the way around. And, and in this past year with the Suns, not, not nearly as bad. Played even more minutes, but still was able to be much more impactful. 48% from the field, 52% from two, which was a, a huge step up, more than tw like 12% percentage points better. And then uh, turnovers, nearly two fewer per game and up to the rebounding, up to the blocks, much more impactful as a defender. And the team was was better, you know. Of course, Booker is a better co-pilot than Kyrie Irving was in that series, but nevertheless, you would have to feel a lot better and feel like Duran is trending in the right direction. But I do think that the number one thing that I think you might have to adjust for in your evaluation of Kevin Duran in 2023, heading into 2024, is that he is not the type of player that you would necessarily expect to create a great shot for his team's offense on a year-in, year-out basis, uh, on a possession-in, possession-out basis. Sorry, I don't know why I said year. Because of the ability for guys to pick his pocket, to play him physically, whether that was Eric Gordon, whether that was Aaron Gordon, whether that was even at times like a Christian Brown or uh, Russell Westbrook, um, that was a... That was a consistent thing throughout every game the Suns played in the postseason was that Durant, if he was just walking the ball up and running the, the Suns offense, there was a there was a vulnerability there, right? There were a, a higher chance of turnovers. There were, you know, uh, some questionable shot 
selection. He wasn't getting all the way to the basket, maybe the way that you would like to see him do. He, uh, 80, sorry, no, uh, 7% of his shots came at the rim in the playoffs, which is down from the previous year with Brooklyn, obviously a smaller sample size, but that 7% is the smallest that it's ever been in his career in any postseason. This is a guy who the first year with Golden State, 27% of his shots in the postseason came at the rim. Um, you know, the floor spacing and, and passing of that team is unparalleled, but that still proves the point. 2011-12, when they go to the finals, it's 23% in 20 games. So it's a big, big decrease from where it used to be and even where it was, you know, in last year's regular season. And I think that matters for Durant going forward. And when you're splitting hairs between him and somebody like, you know, Joel Embiid or Luka Doncic, uh, or obviously the guys ahead of that, it matters. Um, and then the other, the other one that, that gets brought up here is about bringing him along more slowly so that maybe when it comes to playoff time, he's feeling uh, better, you know, physically, more athletically spry and, and kind of, you know, ready to go and can be better. And I think that there's a, a clear case to be made for that. But I think the problem is I'm not sure that there's anybody on this Suns roster who can really replicate what Durant does. And that's obvious to say, maybe it's not a great way to, to put it, but what I would, what I would think is maybe a more fair thing. Of course, nobody can replace that, but can anyone even hold steady? You know, are there lineup types where the Suns are able to, you know, maintain a certain level of size, maintain a, lo a certain level of offense and floor spacing and all of that stuff that Durant can afford to sit games? Obviously, just Bradley Beal being better than we expect, or at least, you know, good for this team would go a long way. Just being able to pick up the slack from just a, a scoring standpoint. But guys like Kata Bates-Diop, you know, will will go a long way. You know, I think even like a Drew Eubanks being able to hold his own where you're not constantly needing Durant as the only other rim protector on this team besides maybe DeAndre Ayton, right? And I think, you know, Eubanks, that's probably the thing he does best. So maybe you're not worried about that. But those are just some of the domino effects. I think that maintaining Durant's health is is important. I mean, just period, because you don't want him to get hurt at all, but especially to have him be peaking come playoff time, which has just not been the case enough for him because he's had these injuries around midseason the past two years to where he is just starting to get his legs back under him and get comfortable by the time all of a sudden it is a high-intensity first-round series because his team wasn't able to get as high of a seed as a result of his injuries, and now you're playing a, a better team and all that stuff. So it's a valid point. I don't have an answer. I think Kata Bates-Diop being great as a role player would go a long way, but he's not really a rim protector still. And so it, it's Beal and Kata, I, I would say. Um, and on the note of the you know offensive numbers going down, I think the ability to get to the basket, get to the free throw line, and, and be a playmaker are probably not going to be at the level they were in his peak, and you have to adjust for that. So... He's in the right spot, but there are obviously still question marks, as there are with any 34-year-old player with a history of injury. Let's go to Devin Booker next, as well as Bradley Beal. We'll get to DeAndre Ayton, as well as who could rise 
to maybe be in this ranking next year and not just have four sons on the list. But first, today's show, of course, brought to you by Bird Dogs. Bird Dogs make you look good. They're comfortable and they keep you cool. And to me, that's really all you need. They're khaki shorts designed to fit slimmer through the thigh and leg, giving you a sculpted look. They do the exact same thing as Lululemon fit-wise or uh, flexibility-wise, but they fit way better. They have re- uh, they're better than the regular shorts that are made of stiff, restricting cotton, of course. And they're moisture-wicking. They're sweat-wicking. So they have that slimmer fit. They have that classy, still nice-looking, so they don't look like gym shorts. And they're stink anti-stink sweat wicking fabric keeps you cool and dry all day long, which yes, I guess we're in a little bit of an overcast period in Phoenix, but you know how important that is if you're a local Suns fan to stay cool. So go to birddogs.com slash locked on NBA or enter the promo code locked on NBA at checkout to get a free white tech hat. I've already been wearing mine. It is very light, obviously color wise, but also on your head. Perfect for a workout, perfect for the golf course. That's birddogs.com slash LockedOnNBA or promo code LockedOnNBA. Check out to get that free white tech hat. You won't want to take your bird dogs off. That's their promise. Keeping it rolling. Let's talk about Devin Booker. I didn't think I had 10 minutes on Durant, but I did. So we're on, uh, we're on to Booker here in a whole new segment. And the thing that uh, Seth Partnow over at The Athletic and his NBA tiers points to when it comes to Booker uh, is his defense. Let's actually start there because... Um, he points to a couple of stats that the first six years of Booker's career, he ranked no higher than 414th in the NBA in defensive um, real adjusted plus minus. And he was in the 26th percentile in defensive estimated plus minus over those whole six years. And the past two Partnow writes that he has graded out as roughly average in terms of regular season defensive impact. And of course, we all know what he did during the postseason last year where he was really, really impressive as a turnover creator, as a team defender, where he had a uh, 2% steal rate, which would be the highest of any regular season of his career and obviously came in the postseason when he was having to do a lot on offense as well. So creating steals. And then, of course, was kind of the Suns' perimeter stopper because they did not have Mikhail Bridges anymore, obviously. And, you know, Duran is not really going to defend guys like Jamal Murray or, you know, Russell Westbrook. So just in terms of one-on-one defense and, and owning those matchups, he did a very nice job as well. He had a two- defensive box plus minus. I know I'm throwing a bunch of plus minuses at you, but these are all just different versions of similar calculations. He had been minus one, basically, in the first two playoffs of his career, 21 and 22. And then in 2023, this past year, rose all the way to plus 2.0, as I just said. So he, I mean, just shattered any preconceived expectations defensively. And I think, you know, that has to matter. It's not something that I think we should expect him to have to do. You don't want your superstar players to necessarily need to exert that much defensively. I mean, you look at the guys around Booker on this list in tier 2A, as I mentioned before, Jimmy Butler, 
you know, he is not always tasked with that job. LeBron James rarely is. Even Kawhi Leonard at this point has Paul George and other guys to take that on. Jason Tatum has Jalen Brown, who I think is a better defender, as well as Marcus Smart in the past, Derek White as a point of attack guy, on and on and on. Um, you just don't want that, but it's also something that we know now Booker can do, and I do think there will be times due to injuries or different matchups and different things like that where he will have to guard great players defensively in order for this team to win. And that matters when you're evaluating this Suns team as well as just where Booker ranks. And so speaking of where Booker ranks, the other thing that Seth brings up is related to Jason Tatum. And so it's just sort of a, you know, the bar debate, you know, shooting the breeze debate among basketball fans. But considering these teams very well could face off in the finals or, you know, uh, are going to to probably be two of the best five, six teams in the league this season. It's an interesting one that actually matters. And where Seth comes down is that there are these moments like the end of game six of the Eastern Conference Finals, or if maybe it was the end of game six. It was kind of both. But those moments when, you know, in that case, Tatum's bringing Embiid out to the perimeter and just scoring on him, you know. I think Tatum has, you know, more 50 and 60 point games than Booker does. Obviously, um, you know, Booker only has the 70 and then a maybe no more than five 50 point games. I think Tatum has more. He just has that upside when he gets going. That's really big. And he's also literally bigger, right? He's six eight, six nine, bigger wingspan, all that stuff. So he's going to be able to make a bigger impact as a defender just because of that. But I'll take issue with it here because I do feel sort of like the consistency of what Booker can do to create great shots for himself or a teammate. I just have not seen from Tatum and granted, I've only seen it from Booker really like at certain moments in the playoffs and, you know, really like various points during, let's say November and December. And then again, around like January February of this past regular season but the point is you've seen it you've seen it over multiple games in a row you've seen it against high level selling out to stop him defenses and worst talent around him frankly and so I do think I would have Booker above but again these are tiers so technically you know Booker is in the same tier as Tatum they're they're equivalent on this list but at the end of the day um Seth does right in the article that he would take Tatum by a hair. I would take Booker. Um, and I think Booker of this group, again, it's LeBron, Kawhi, Jimmy, Tatum, and Booker. <clears throat> I think Book has the best claim to being in the 1A, sorry, the 1B group, the 1B tier that Durant is in with Luca and, and Joel. And that would make the Suns have two top seven players basically if you say booker is at the top of this tier which it's just such a strange tier because again it's injuries and age and playoffs versus regular season and all this stuff but if booker is even somewhat close to what he was this past playoffs i think you would put him above lebron and Kawhi and, and butler and tatum uh just flat out so there we go I think he's definitely above Tatum. I think he has the best claim of any of these guys to be in the higher tier. And again, when you're thinking about it big picture, why this type of list matters, 
that's two guys in the top seven and, and nobody else has that. No one else even has, even if you just say that keep Booker in the tier that he's in and that now you're talking about the top, uh, how many guys is this? Um, 12, 11 guys in the NBA. No one else has two in the top 11 because, uh, you know, the Celtics Tatum is higher than Brown. Clippers, Paul George is nowhere to be seen here. Anthony Davis is in tier two with LeBron, but behind him, so not a, not anybody above him. It's just a, a thing where you look at, at at this tier one. Steph doesn't have another teammate like that. Giannis doesn't have another teammate like that. Jokic doesn't. Luka doesn't. And Embiid doesn't. So regardless of where you feel like Durant and Booker maybe within their tiers, or even if they're maybe a little bit low, maybe Booker can be higher, all that stuff, the point is... This type of exercise proves from a person who's very analytical, watches the league, has worked in the league, Seth Partner worked for the Milwaukee Bucks, is agreeing with what we all think, which is that the Suns have that tandem that no one in the league can even come close to competing with. And if they both even just stay at the level we expect them to, you would have to feel pretty good. But I think Booker will rise above that. All right. Had 10 minutes on Booker, too. So we're getting to Beal and Aiton and the risers on the back of the Suns roster who could become one of the top 125 guys in the league after or over the course of this season. We'll talk about Beal, Aiton, and those guys after one more break. Coming back, closing out the show, let's talk about Bradley Beal, who is in Tier 3C on Seth Partnow's NBA tiers over at The Athletic. He doesn't have a lot to write about Beal, <laughs> um, to be honest, but he is in this group, uh, which he doesn't really name, but he pretty much calls them, like, they're just a touch above elite role players. But you have to think, an elite role player, that's not just anybody, okay? So let me give you an example of like who's in 4A right behind Beal to, tell you, to give you an idea of what that really means. Um, OG Ananobi, right? DeMontis Sabonis is there. Andrew Wiggins, Darius Garland. So that's the kind of guys that Beal is still ahead of, right? So like don't don't get too insulted uh, by, by that designation. And the guy that Seth Partnow compares Beal directly to is DeMar DeRozan, which I guess is fair, but Beal is quite a bit younger than DeMar, like a few years, and has a, an offensive game that can play off of great players more easily, or at least has done that in the past. I think that's a big question we're looking at. And it doesn't really, I guess... It's just unknowable right now, so it's kind of hard to factor that into where you would rank him now, um, except to say that when he was playing next to John Wall, he did that, and he has said all the right things that would indicate that he knows that there's going to be a different diet to his offensive game and a different approach that he's going to have to take, and that I just believe him. So, you know, I feel good about Beal in this range. Uh, in this range. When you look at the guys above him, on this list, it's Trey Young, it's Kyrie Irving, it's Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, Draymond Green, and Pascal Siakam, uh, as well as, I'm not going to list everybody. But those guys are all-stars, just flat out, right? I mean, um, Zion has been an all-star more recently. Well, I guess maybe the same year Beal last was. Brunson was an all-star last year. Markkanen was an all-star last year. Siakam, Holiday, 
Kyrie, Trey, those guys were all all-stars this most recent season. Beal was not. So that feels correct. The more maybe interesting thing to me, though, that gets brought up that I haven't talked about in these rankings yet is that Seth also does an estimate of, let me call it the right thing, make sure I'm calling it right, production, uh, (laughs) I don't know what, production value estimate? He shortened it, and now I don't know what it's called. Basically, what is the amount of money that his expected, Beal's expected production would be equivalent to? And there used to be a tool at 538.com that would do this stuff, and it came out around this year. And I would always do a show at least talking a little bit about it because I think it's super interesting when we talk about contracts. Oh, overpay, underpay, and we, we almost never go back and really look at it, right? But this kind of tries to do that. And it has it by minutes, but we'll just assume Beal plays a lot because I'm not going to, you know. If you get into injury talk, it's just, what are you going to say? There's not really a lot. So he has it broken down by like this many minutes, that many minutes, that many minutes, decreasing. But let's just say 2,500 minutes is the biggest one on on the range on these tiers. Let's say Beal plays that. He has it at $35 million. Now, of course, that's more uh, less than what Beal actually makes. And Beal has only actually played 2,500 plus minutes three times, and the most recent time he did it was 2018-19. So it's probably not reasonable to say that he will do that, but let just for the sake of it. Um, and he's making this upcoming season $46 million. So when you think about it that way, and the, the tier list doesn't include salary. It's not based on, well, you're the best value or anything like that. Bill Simmons does the trade value stuff. That's more about salary and age and a lot of these things this this list is just who's gonna be the best player if you're trying to win a championship this season and Beal is valued that way nevertheless right that's still a factor to care about if you're a Suns fan even if it's not necessarily on these rankings I don't have a lot of like analysis of what to say I just wanted to point that out and show you that yes Beal is already overpaid and probably right and he has not even reached the level of minutes to get to the 35 let alone you know the the 40 plus that he's actually making again 47 that he's actually making so don't be surprised if they're conti- if you feel like this is hate let's just put it that way then don't feel su- don't be surprised if that continues to to happen as more of these lists come out as everything else there's a lot of question marks around Bradley Beal and rightly so a lot of the things that you would expect him to do, point of attack defense, movement uh, off ball, and you know, really being a dynamic floor spacer that really demands the attention of the defense off ball. Those are things that he can do, that we've seen him do, but not recently and not at a championship level, obviously, because he's never been on that great of a team. So it feels like the right place, but it is a big question, and the money part only intensifies that question. Let's go with DeAndre and to close things out, who is uh, an interesting category here in the rankings, and he is in Tier 4C. Some of the other guys in that tier <clears throat> are John Collins, and let me um, find the name of what the tier is. Numbers over impact. That is what he calls it. And so Collins is here. Jeremy Grant is here. Those are the only really like forwards or centers, which I think is honestly the place that I start immediately because there's a line in Seth's write-up on The Athletic that says 
Uh, if there's a commonality in this group, it's questionable defense, though neither Grant nor Ayton is awful on that end. It's a weird thing with DeAndre Ayton defensively, where most seasons of his career, the team has had a better defensive rating when he's off the court. His block rate has never been high. And in the playoffs, it's gone down each, each postseason that he's played. It was near, near 3% his first year, and now it's down this most recent year below 2%, which is just how many percentage of possessions that he's playing defense does he block a shot. And a lot of the other metrics, obviously, this most recent regular season were just outright ugly. He regressed. So I'm not even talking about this most recent season, but even if you think he can reach the heights maybe that he was in 2021 in his first go-round when they made the finals, the stats would tell you even that wasn't great. <clears throat> At least, you know, it would tell you that Seth calling it, quote, not awful is probably accurate. But if anybody watched those games, it, it was better than that. It was better than not awful. I think you would say Aiton's defense the year that the Suns ran, made their run to the finals was good. Maybe not great, but good. And so the stats don't prove that. It hasn't happened in a while. And he went backward even more this most recent season. So again, this might feel disrespectful. This might feel like hate, but it's hard to argue with at the end of the day. Um, that said, I look at the tier above Aiton, which would be 4B, and I see guys like Nick Claxton, Victor Wembanyama, Julius Randle, Brooke Lopez, Miles Turner, Jared Allen. Those are guys, big men, that I would probably have over Aiton, but mostly from a salary standpoint. I think that he's at least equivalent to a lot of those guys, especially somebody like Jared Allen, especially somebody like uh, Nick Claxton. I think he's, I, I would say I, that DeAndre Aiton is better than those two players right now. I just think they make less money than him and or they're younger than him, whatever the case is. And so maybe that's why they're ahead. But it doesn't quite feel fair. 4A, you're getting into, uh, even Towns is in 4B. 4A, you're getting into Porzingis, Mobley, Draymond, Sabonis. I don't think Gaten's at that level. But I do think he is, uh, sorry, Draymond's not in there. Um, I do think he's deserves to be a tier ahead. But the point is, he has to prove it, and we've been talking about that all offseason. All right, quickly to close out the show, risers, people who could make it here uh, by the end of by the beginning of next season. When I look at the the lowest tier, which is tier five, uh, we'll go all the way down to the bottom of five A, which again they're all supposed to be equal. But I I see Ivica Zubats here. I see uh, Gary Payton, Malik Monk, Benedict Matherin. Jakob Pertl, Terry Rozier. Those guys are uh, veterans in, in most cases, so maybe you know there's just a level of trustworthiness that's there, whereas a lot of the Suns bench doesn't have that. But I feel like Keita Bates-Diop especially, and I that might have to be it. I mean, Eric Gordon would be an obvious one. I'm sure he's fluctuated up and down over time on this list. Um, and I want to say Josh Okogie could do it. I want to say Drew Eubanks too, but a backup center is not really going to get the job done. Maybe he's just so good that it feels like he could be a, a starting center. And so he just ends up 
feeling like a, a really like maybe Aiton gets hurt or something like that and, and he's able to prove himself. I don't want that to happen, of course, for Aiton's sake, but you could see it. Probably not very likely. Gordon, of course, if he just has an awesome year, could very well feel that way. And then Akogi, I think, is the interesting one. I've said a lot. I think it's either Goodwin or Akogi to be playing kind of as like the last rotation spot or one of the last rotation spots as a backup kind of wing slash guard. Um, if Akogi ever has that jumper come around, he's going to be right there. He's one of the best perimeter defenders, on-ball defenders in the entire league, kind of no matter what metric you look at or if you just want to watch, you would feel that way. And just a little bit of passable shot making <clears throat> or uh, increased playmaking, screen and roll, short roll, kind of like how Bruce Brown was used in Brooklyn. If there's any little incremental part of his offensive game that develops in a positive direction where he's more playable in postseason situations then he absolutely becomes on the level of I mean Gary Payton is the blueprint for a guy like that and and Gary Payton is on this list you know um like even Quentin Grimes is somebody who offensively didn't always have it in this most recent postseason for New York but defense is very good and he made shots and can handle the ball enough right it's it's kind of that's the bar that we're talking about uh Keldon Johnson PJ Washington Manuel quickly like those are those are guys that, that I really do feel like you could see a Kogi be equivalent with if the offense comes around all right that is it I won't do a deep dive on all these rankings but I do think the athletics tiers are the best one and I think that there's a lot to chew on I hope you guys agreed there hopefully back with Brandon Duenas uh, on Tuesday to give our three strongest takes about the Suns for the season. Just really debate those and have some fun. He was sick on Sunday, so we weren't able to record that, but you can hit follow or subscribe. Get it in your feed. Pretty much a bonus episode, really, because of that. So you'll get four this week if things go according to plan. Talk to you guys whenever that next time might be. See you then.